morning, church. My name is Cody King. I'm the Journey Group's pastor here at Stone Point, and um, I'm glad that everyone here is here with us this morning. You chose to join us this morning at Stone Point. We're in, um, we're in week 10 of our summer series on Hebrews, the first and the last. And before I start, I want to ask you a question. Have, have you ever received or been given just an overwhelming abundance of information? Whether at work or at school, you just, you just had all this information just, just dumped on you, for lack of a better word, and, you just, and, it, and it overwhelms you. To where, you, know, you, you. Your eyes blink, and then you, you, have, you have sheets and pages and words and thoughts just flying by your face, and your head wants to spin around, and you just, you're overwhelmed with all that's been given you. And then you get this, and then when you begin to file all these things away, you get to the point where you're like, okay, now I've got all this information, what do I do with it? Has anyone been there? That was me this week. <laughs> As I was preparing for chapter 10 here, there's an abundance of information that comes with this chapter. I mean, you could do at least four sermons or four messages just on this one chapter. And I just had all this information. I just thought I was overwhelmed. It's like, Lord, how do I take what you've given here and how do I put this into a message? How, how do I share this? You know, and I, I mean, I walked around my house, walked around the dining table, walked around the couch, and I'm just talking this out. How do I, how do I collect all these thoughts and share this? And then the Lord revealed to me. He used that overwhelming emotion to show me really what he's got here. Because the point of chapter 10, we've had nine chapters. If you're joining us for the first time, we've had nine previous chapters. Each week we took a chapter of Hebrews, and I encourage you to go to stonepointchurch.com Click the resources link and you can watch all nine messages over Hebrews. But he gives us all this information. The writer gives us so much truth in nine chapters about who Jesus is. That song that we just sang was just fantastic for where we're at because it all is about Jesus. Nine chapters of just knowledge and information that is almost overwhelming as to who Jesus is. So we get all this and the theme of chapter 10 is you get all this information. Now what do you do with it? Where's the application? So by the end of this, I hope we all see this is what we need to do with Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Lord, we thank you for this morning. I thank you once again, God, that um, you've given me the privilege, Lord, and the blessing and the responsibility, Lord, to, to be here, Lord, and be useful to you, Lord. And I just uh, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning, Lord, just a clarity of it and an understanding of it, Lord, so that we can take all of this information, all this knowledge that you give, Lord, Lord, and we can apply it to our lives. We can move forward with it and use it to better glorify you and to raise your kingdom, Lord. And I just pray for this time. I pray that you bless this time, Lord, and just empower us to receive what you have to say. Lord, in your name I pray. Amen. So, verses 1 through 18 here, this is, this is the last time here in the epistle that the writer is going to compare once again the sacrificial system, the old covenant, with Jesus. He's going to show the weakness of the one and the greatness of the other. So starting in verse 1, he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So if you remember from chapter, chapter 8, the law was but a shadow and a copy of the heavenly things to come. And because they were a shadow of those things to come, they could not make perfect those who draw near. They pointed to our imperfection. They pointed to our sin. They pointed to a problem. But he's saying because of that, if they 
could make perfect. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So we're saying is, so the law commands that they come once a year to make the same sacrifices over and over to atone for their sin. But it didn't make perfect because if it did, they'd only have to do it one time and it would cleanse them. But he says in verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So the fact that the law commanded that every year they come and give the same sacrifice that reminded them of the sin that they're having to atone for. It reminds them of the guilt that they have in their sin. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the blood of bulls and goats, and the reason why it's impossible is because they're not of the same nature as us. They were not sinners like we were. They were innocent, which they could atone, but they couldn't cover because they're not of our nature. Verse 5, consequently, because of that, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, a body of the same nature as us. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in me, of me in the scroll of the book. And the writer of Hebrews here in, in verse 8, he explains what he just quoted. He says, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, which these are offered through the law. Now, God commanded in the law that they make these offerings and sacrifices, but here he's saying that he neither desired them nor took pleasure in them. And why did he all of a sudden start not desiring or take pleasure? Because Jesus is coming. There's a difference. There's a change that's going to have to be made. And Jesus says, then then he added in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. So God no longer desires these same sacrifices over and over because Jesus has come to do his will. Verse 10, And by that will we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. So by that will we have been sanctified. Matthew 26, 39, Jesus says, My Father, if if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So in effect, Jesus is is submitting himself to the will of the Father. In his nature, his human nature, he wants the cup to pass. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And when Jesus went to the cross, he aligned his will with the will of the Father. Matthew Henry said it like this. He said, when no less sacrifice would be a proper satisfaction to the justice of God than that of Christ himself, then Christ voluntarily came into it. And then verse 11, he continues, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. So the priest stands daily at his service. And that's a picture. He's standing at his service. He's standing at work. By the law, the priests were required to take the sacrifices from the people and make that sacrifice on their behalf. And he did this all day. That was his service. So he's standing in service doing that. All the time, repeatedly the same sacrifices. But then Jesus, he said in verse 12, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So standing as it were, Jesus went and sat down as if to say, it is done. It's complete. His work is finished. You know, so he sits down. And he sits down at the right hand of the, world, at the, right hand of the throne of heaven, the right hand of God. And that's where in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 25, it's where he always lives to intercede for us on our behalf. Verse 13, and then waiting from that time, he 
waiting from that time until his enemy should be made, made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has, sacri- he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering of sin. So this marks the end of the doctrinal part of the epistle. He's given us all this information. This is who Jesus is. If you had any doubts, nine chapters and 18 verses, this is who Jesus is. This is the weakness of the law. This is Jesus better than that. He's the better prophet. He's the better priest. He's the better king. The true and better, better than everything we can ever think of. Jesus is better. So then this is where he begins to make the, make the change here. We got all this information, and this is where the Lord brought me to. I have all this information. Now, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? How do we respond? How do we apply all of this that we have just heard and soaked in? Well, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad you're asking. Because <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews is about to tell us. So verse 19, he says, Therefore, because of all of that, therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Did you catch it in there? I said a lot. But the first thing that he says to do in these verses, after everything that he just told us about, The first thing he says to do is in verse 22. He says, let us draw near. So what do we do with all this information we have? The first thing that he says to do is draw near. And this is the fifth time that the writer of Hebrews has used that phrase in his epistle. The first time was 4.16. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Then in 7.19, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. The fourth time is chapter 10, verse 1. The law pointed to our imperfection. He could not make perfect those who draw near. Remember, the idea of drawing near to God is not a coming to God and stopping where you're at. It's a continual, perpetual drawing near to God. So why do we draw near? We draw near because of everything he just said. Because of all the knowledge that has been poured on us, we draw near. The first word in verse 19 is, therefore. I love the word therefore in scripture because that tells me that what I'm about to read, I need to grab hold of what I just read. I need to grab hold and understand of what came before for me to really know what he's talking about afterwards. So he says, therefore, because of everything there, you can look at verse 14. It says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, draw near to God. Verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Amen. Therefore, draw near to God. Are you not drawing near to God because of past sin in your life and the shame you feel of it, the guilt you have because of sin that you can't let go of? He remembers it no more. Therefore, draw near to God. Verse 19 says, Since or because we have confidence, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, draw near to God. It's no longer the blood of bulls and goats. It allows one man to go into the most holy place to make atonement for the people. 
because of Jesus' sacrifice, the way is open. It's the living way. Bulls and goats stay dead. Jesus is alive. It is the living way, and the way is open. Therefore, draw near to God. And then verse 21, since, again, or because we have a great priest over the house of God. What is the house of God? It's no longer a temple. It's no longer a most holy place that one person goes into. The house of God is us. You didn't come to the house of God this morning. You came to a building. We are the house of God. And Jesus is a great priest over us, and the way is open. Therefore, draw near. It's no longer a place that we go to. It's not a physical act that we do. It's an inward response. It is a directing our heart towards God. You don't have to go somewhere to do it. You can right now, in your chair, as I speak, draw near to God. You can draw near to God at your house. You can draw near to God at work. You can draw near to God in any suffering that you have, any place that you have, any amount of joy that you have. You can draw near to God at your kid's baseball game or your football game. You can draw near to God driving down the road. Any point in time, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, you can draw near to God. And because of that, the writer says, first and foremost, draw near to God. It's a spiritual act. It's a directing our hearts towards God. So how should we draw near is the next question. And the answer is that. He says, let us draw near with a true or sincere heart in full assurance of faith. A true, sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That full assurance is because of what Jesus did. We have a full assurance of faith. And that's how we draw near. That's how we should come in. And as holy as the most holy place was in the temple that allowed one man to go in there, if we are now the house of God and the Holy Spirit lives in us, the presence of God that used to sit on the mercy seat now lives in us, and Jesus is our priest and the way is open, we are no less holy than that most holy place was. Grab a hold of that, Christian. That is who you are. You are as holy as the most holy place that only one person could go in one time a year to see to be in the presence of God. That is the power that we have. And because of that, therefore, draw near to God. And because of that, we are holy. We draw near to God, not carelessly and lackadaisically. We draw near with boldness and confidence, with a reverence for who we're drawing near to. Then the last thing he says there um, in 25, he says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now the imagery here in this verse is taken from the sacrificial ceremonies of the Old Covenant. You know, it's where the blood was sprinkled. Remember from chapter 9, you know, the high priest went there, he sprinkled blood on the altar to atone for the sins of the people, to to cleanse the people. And the priests themselves, they were continually washing themselves with clean water to cleanse their body of uncleanliness. But there's, that is the imagery here for what the Holy Spirit is doing. You know, being washed with pure water, that does not refer to a Christian baptism. That's not required for what it is. But, but what he's saying is, but it's the Holy Spirit's work purifying a person's life by means of the Word of God. That's what he's talking about. By example, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's always a work of the Holy Spirit. This is purely a new covenant picture of an Old Testament promise. 
Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. So the writer continues in verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the first thing we do with all this information, we draw near to God, and the second thing is we hold fast the confession of our hope. We hold on to that hope, and what is that hope? That hope is that Jesus is going to come back. And the reason we have hope and we can hang on to that hope is because the promise that a Savior would come and the fulfillment of that promise in Jesus and Him going to the cross and saving us empowers us and gives us hope in the promise that He's going to come back. So we hold on to that. That's what gets us through any struggle that we have. That's what gets us through any great thing we have. Is that hope that Jesus has come. Nothing compares to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. And that's we hold on to that hope. We have to hold on to that hope. This side of eternity, let us hold on to that. And it's something that it's not something that is done for salvation. It's something that we do because of our salvation. So the first two things have to do with us as individuals. This is what we do. You know, people don't necessarily see us drawing near to God or see us holding on to hope. You know, they're inward expressions of what should be an outward faith. So what does it look like coming out? What should we do outwardly now? The writer explains that. Verse 24, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So the word for stir up there is, it's, it has a meaning of provoke. It's used two times in the New Testament. And one time is, it's, it's used to describe a dispute, but another time to provoke. But I like the way the ESV translates this to stir up. Because I get an image of, of a glass of Kool-Aid. And you put sugar in it, because nobody's going to drink Kool-Aid without sugar. You know, so you put, the, you put the sugar in there, and you've got to stir it up to, to sweeten the Kool-Aid. But if you stop stirring, stirring too soon before it all gets in there, that sugar will begin to s- settle and set at the bottom of that glass. And if you leave it sitting there long enough, that sugar is going to start soaking up that fluid, and it's going to get hard and crystallized. So then if you want to go back later and begin to stir it up to sweeten up your Kool-Aid that you don't want to drink that's not sweet, you've got to poke at it, and then you're provoking it you got to poke at it, and you got to break it up and really get to stirring to begin sweetening, sweetening the Kool-Aid. That's the image that I get by stirring up one another. And what do we stir up one another to? We stir up to love and good works. This should be the focus of the Christian life. We should get up every day as a Christian and look for ways to stir one another up to love and good works. And that stirring one another up, that's, that's outward. That's not inward. That takes the focus off of ourselves. If we're concerned about each other and stirring one another up, we're not, we're not doing anything about ourselves. But if I, if Cody King ends up getting a little settled and my sugar starts hitting the bottom of that glass, if I'm doing that enough and we're collectively stirring one another up, somebody's going to come around and begin stirring me up. And the longer that I sit there, the harder they're going to have to provoke. And it's probably going to hurt a little bit because we don't like to be rebuked. You know, but the sting in any rebuke is the truth. But that collectively, if we do that, it comes back around. So the focus is on others, but then from others, it comes back on us. And we all just spur and stir one another up. That is what we should be doing. So how do we do this? Verse 25 tells us. He says, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And not neglecting to meet together. The word there in the Greek, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, it, but it means gathering together in one place, literally. So an argument can be made that, 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 that this text right here is talking about us as a church, we should be gathering together 
in one place. Don't neglect to come together on a Sunday morning and meet. And that is a good application from this text, but that's not exactly, that's not really what he means. If you really look in the context of what he's saying, he's saying so much more. And why is that? Think about it. He says that we're not, to, we're not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. Encouraging one another. Who here on their way to church this morning, you came here with the purpose of finding one person that you were going to ask, hey, what's, what's God been teaching you his word? Who came here this morning with the mindset, I'm going to find somebody and I'm going to encourage that person this morning. I'm going to stir them up this morning. And we're going to have a spiritual conversation and it's going to be reciprocal and we're going to, we're going to move forward. Who came here with that mindset this morning? And that's okay. But how did you come this morning? Well, I can probably ask yourself, I wonder who's preaching today. They've been flip-flopping on that a lot lately. <laughs> well, more or less, you came this morning, you shook some hands, you had some fellowship, you had good conversations, you got some coffee and some donuts, and none of that is bad. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're, that's, that you're, anybody's wrong or doing something bad in that. But that's how you came this morning. It's how we generally come. And then we worship, we sing some songs, and then now you're sitting in a chair and you're being poured on. In, in effect, I'm encouraging you, but you're not encouraging me right now. And that's okay. That's the function of the church. I'm not listening, preaching, and what we do here on a Sunday morning. But what is he talking about? He says encouraging one another. It's an idea of a mutual action. It's something two people or more than one person are doing back and forth towards each other. Right now, I'm just pouring on you, and you're receiving, and that's okay. You're supposed to do that. Don't get me wrong. But he's talking about so much more. So what does it look like within the church to encourage one another if he's not talking about just coming together on a Sunday morning and not neglecting to do that? To me, it looks like a picture of a small group. Here at Stone Point, we call them journey groups. You know, I struggle with, like, why am I doing chapter 10? Why, why do I have to do chapter 10? But it's no coincidence to me now that I'm the journey group pastor and I'm preaching on a text that points directly at a journey group ministry and a small group ministry and what that looks like and the purpose of it. And the purpose of a journey group here or a small group is for people to come together and encourage one another to stir each other up and help each other move along, to not be alone in this life, in this Christian walk, to not just do it on a Sunday morning. It's so much more than that. We're not meant to come on a Sunday morning and stop right there. We have to do more. We have to continue encouraging each other. So how or what are we encouraging them to do? We're encouraging each other to draw near to God and hold on to our confession. Because that's what gets us through the struggle. Life happens and we all know it. The good times, the bad times. But a journey group, when things go bad, it's great to have people there. And when you don't know what to say, the first thing that comes to you, you ought to be able to say, stand firm. This, this week, just this week, I, uh, I was asked to, to write a letter of encouragement to a graduate you know, going into college. And I was honored to do so that they would ask me to do that. And, and I was thinking about what I was thinking about, what would I say? I like, what would I say to encourage a teenage girl going into college in 2016? It's like, I don't, what word could I have for her whenever she has a bad day and she just needs encouragement? You know, and, and, and lackadaisically, I just kind of had this thought, well, you just tell her, you know, keep your eyes on Jesus. Or keep your eyes on God. Yeah, all right, that's, that's good. You know, and I topped that down and I just kind of, went off from that but as I was typing the Lord convicted me of that why would I last lackadaisically whenever I'm trying to give someone encouragement carelessly and lightly say well just keep your eyes on the Lord 
If anybody's ever said that to you, have, how have you received it? Well, yeah, I know I should do that. Do you? Because to me, the Lord hit me with that. There's not a better word of encouragement that could be given to any one person in a time of struggle than keep your eyes on the Lord. Draw near to God. Because He's the one that sustains us. Hold on to that hope that you have. Remind each other of the promise to come. You can get through it all. There's not a better word of encouragement that you can give and keep your eyes on the Lord. Draw near. So that is what we do in our journey groups. And then we pray for each other. My journey group, um, specifically, we have a, a running prayer request you know, group text. And anytime someone has a struggle, they can put it on there. And I know if I have a struggle and I ask for prayer, I know that 11 people are going to pray for me. And there's nothing more, church, that stirs me up and encourages me than knowing that I have 11 people who love me and are praying for me because I'm going through a bad struggle. Or just simply a bad day, or I might have a bad hour. Hey, guys, pray for me. And I know that they are, and that encourages me. That is what happens within our groups. There's story after story within our groups of someone who had a, their house burned down or had, had a family loss or something happened, and their group just surrounded them, lifted them up, and carried, it through, carried them through it. And then he says, do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day he's talking about is the day that Jesus comes back. He says, do it all the more as it draws near. Tomorrow, that day is nearer tomorrow than it is today. Therefore, all the more we should not be neglecting to meet together and encouraging one another. Now, there's two, two, two groups of people here. There's those that meet together and encourage one another and stir one another up. And there's those that don't. And the writer even addresses that. He puts those people in there. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. There are some that neglect to meet. There are some that are here right now, and you're just sitting in a chair. You're being poured on, and you're going to walk out of here, and you're going to disregard what we just said, and you're not going to apply it in your life, but you're going to come back next week. There are some that are in a journey group that are get poured on, encouraged, and prayed for, but you're not encouraging, and you're not praying for, you're not stirring on, but you're getting stirred. It's tough. There are some people here to do it. There's some people in journey groups that commit to a journey group, go twice out of 18 meetings. And then when life happens, they get mad because the church isn't trying to help them. But yet they're the ones that have skipped back. There's two types of people. What type of person are you? What group are you in? If you're in group one, number one, find somebody in group number two and stir them up. Start provoking them to wake back up. Light that fire back within them. Remind them of the joy of their salvation. Start encouraging that person. Pray for that person. So that's what you do. With all this information. Verse 26, he, 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 he kind of shifts. And he tells us what you don't do with this information. And this is one of the most serious warnings in all of Scripture. Right here, what he's about to say. In verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, and deliberately, it's the idea of a deliberate intention or habitual sin. You're someone who is habitually sinning over and over and over after receiving the knowledge of truth. And knowledge there, the word is epignosis, which is a precise or correct knowledge. It's not a false teaching that this person has received. It is the correct knowledge. It's chapters 1 through 9 and 18 verses. They have received that truth, but yet they have gone on sinning habitually after receiving it. And therefore, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So they've rejected the very thing that can cleanse them, make them clean. 
And because they've rejected, there no longer remains a sacrifice for them. There's no alternative. But, verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And the adversaries are those who are opposed. It's those that are in opposition to the word. And he says there is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume them. A fury of fire. There is a motion to that fury. God has a fury against this type of habitual sinning when you've received his promise. You've heard it. You may not understand it. You don't know what it means, but you have heard it. You've received it. And he has a fury against that, a fire that will consume them. And that consuming is not an annihilating or doing away with. It's a consuming fire. It's bringing someone into that fire and consuming them. Verse 28, he says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if two or three people under the law were to see somebody setting aside the law, that person would die without mercy. Because they have set aside the law. That's how serious it was. But by that, he says, 29, how much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant which is, which he, by which he was sanctified, and he has outraged the Spirit of grace? Now, trampled underfoot there, in, in that time, in the ancient Near East, there, was, there wasn't more of an extreme gesture of utter contempt and scorn. That thought, to trample underfoot someone, to walk over someone. You could not lower someone any lower with that gesture. And, 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 and much like we would flip somebody off that, that type of disdain, they would raise their heel. That was the image they would do. They would raise their heel at them. And it was as if this person is just with utter disdain flipping off the Son of God. That's the picture of this person that the, that the writer's describing. And then he has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And the word profane there, he is, it's in the Jewish... Jewish culture that is, that is making something common or unclean or defiled. And he's talking about the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The blood of the covenant, that is the very thing, the most important aspect of Christ's sacrifice is the shedding of the blood. And he's saying that that right there is uncommon and unclean and defiled. Essentially, Jesus was a sinner and he was a blemished sacrifice and it's no good. That's what he's saying this person is doing. And he has outraged the spirit of grace. Jesus said in Matthew, um, he said that someone can disgrace the Son of Man, the Son of God, and still be forgiven. But if you disgrace the Holy Spirit, there's no forgiveness of that. But this person has outraged the spirit of grace. And it's the very grace that he freely could receive, that God laid down freely for him. But he's outraged the spirit of grace. So verse 30 and 31, this is what happens. For we know of him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is what you don't do with everything that we've just received in nine chapters. You don't do this because it is a fearful thing, he says, to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a stark warning right there. Though God is loving and all that, he is a God of judgment. There is still a righteous judgment that has to be made against the sin of this world. And if you go on sinning deliberately and habitually, and you're trampling under front of the Son of God, you're profaning his blood of the covenant, it will be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then verse 32 says, this is what it looks like whenever you do the right things. Whenever you draw near to God, you're holding on to your confession of your hope, and you're spurring one another on, this is what it looks like. Verse 32, he says, but, but, he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, 
You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he says, recall, he's reminding them of something that happened within their church a time before. And he says, after you were enlightened, we're assuming that they're fresh believers, they're new believers, and already they're enduring a hard struggle with suffering. And it's either directly or indirectly what he says. You're directly enduring that hard struggle or being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, being publicly persecuted for your faith, or you're partners with it. How are you partners with that? Well, as a Christian body, you see someone that's suffering, and they would go and help those that are suffering. And because of that help, they were made partners in that persecution and affliction. They befell the same thing because they went to help their brothers. And then four, you had compassion on those in prison. Sometimes people went to prison for their faith. Who knows somebody in here that went to prison for their faith in Jesus Christ in the United States of America? Got you too. I mean, really, but these people, that was the cost of that faith. We, we don't need to forget that. That happens within this world. People in this world, outside of the United States, they go to prison for their faith. They lose their possessions for their faith. I mean, think about it. If, if, you were to, if we were to take food and clothing over to southern Louisiana and help the flood victims there, like we go to do that, spread Jesus, the love of Jesus, good, you know, love and good deeds, and then we come back to our house, and our house, our windows are knocked out, and it's ransacked and broken, spray painted on the walls. As Christians, stay out. We don't need you. That is the picture. But how did these people respond? They responded joyfully. It says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. How did they do that? Because they knew you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. They knew what was to come. They knew that it was more important to share love and good deeds than it was to have their things. And they put themselves to the hazard for the people, not for themselves. That is the outward focus. It's not the inward focus. But the days are evil. It's hard. We are utterly blessed to be born in the United States of America. We're not persecuted for our faith. We can come together right here three times on a Sunday morning, once in Edgewood, and come together as an assembly and not be persecuted for it. But still... Times are hard here. There is a chasm that is being created between the authority of our country and its people. And it's being filled more and more with evil and hatred. It's being shared more and more. We see that more and more than we see love and good deeds. I just recently got a Facebook. And I see more and more negative things posted and shared on Facebook than positive things. So what are we doing, church? Let's stop sharing the negative stories and start showing people love and good deeds. Let's find and seek out stories of love and good deeds and share those. Put it right in the comment section of a negative story. We need to start sharing that so that other people see the love and good deeds. This is what the church is. Let's not become inward. Let's continue to go outward. What we see here in 32 through 34, we see that Love and good works can be costly. Love costs. The cross proves that. Good works can be unsafe. They can jeopardize our security, but we have a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Don't throw away your confidence. 
Hold on to that because you need to endure. We've got to endure, church, so that when we've done the will of God, when we've continued to do this, when we've spurred each other on, when love and good works comes out of us, when we've done the will of God, we receive what is promised. For yet, a, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. There is an urgency that should be there. And if he shrinks back, or but, by, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, there's the warning again. My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So who are we, church? Are we those that shrink back? Are you one that just shrinks back? Are you, are you spurring each other on? Are you stirring one another up? Are you drawing near yourself? Are you holding fast the confession of your hope? You know, are you taking from the church? Or are you giving to the church? And I'll take it from John F. Kennedy. It fits with a slight change. But, uh, but we should, we should be, uh, we should ask not what, the church can do for us but what we can do for the church simple enough I'm going to pray for you Lord we thank you for this morning God we thank you for your word the truth of it Lord and I just I pray for us Lord as a, as a body Lord that that we grab a hold of your word and just the knowledge that you impart on us Lord and Holy Spirit just continue to give us understanding of it Lord and how to Apply it. Help us, Lord, to find ways, Lord, to spur each other on. Consider how you say, Lord, to spur one another on, to stir each other up. Show us ways to do that, Lord. Help us to get creative in that, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us to continually draw near to you, Lord, and hold on to that hope, Lord, that you will come again and receive us into your own, Lord, and just the glory that is to be had is so much better than the present things of this world, Lord. That we would focus on others, not on ourselves, Lord. We'd focus on you first, and because of that, you would come out of us, Lord. And I just pray as a church, Lord, that you continue to challenge us, Lord. And it's not an easy thing, Lord, but I just pray that you continue to do that and just move us and shape us into what you would have us to be. And it's your name I pray.